Nothing on this podcast is intended as legal advice, nor does it create an attorney-client relationship. Please be advised that this podcast also contains spoilers and swears. podcast about day drinking and spooky graveyard sex. I'm one of your hosts, Elizabeth. And I'm your other host, Laura. Well, Laura, it's been a minute, hasn't it? Yeah, we took a couple weeks off. What have have you been up to? So last week I took a day off work because my niece turned one. So I went out to my sister's and celebrated with them. And it's kind of sad because she's a true COVID baby. She has not been socialized. So there are like three people in this entire world that she likes. It's her mommy, her daddy, and her sissy. And other than that, if anyone tries to hold her or even look at her for a long period of time, she starts screaming like someone's trying to kidnap her. Not to rob you of your touching moment, that discussion we had last week on Drag Queen kind of actually got me thinking and I actually ended up watching Hairspray, the original one. I think it was from 1988. The one mm-hmm. with Ricky Lake and Divine as Edna Turnblatt, because I think we had talked a little bit about Divine, about how she was from Baltimore and how she was basically queen of the drag queens. I heard that you learned a little tidbit over the week about another uh, one of our favorite drag queens. Yes. So I have a good friend who loves RuPaul and listens to RuPaul's podcast and apparently RuPaul is a huge Murder, She Wrote fan. So if we have any fans out there who can contact RuPaul, get us the hookup, tag us, tweet us, Twitter face us, let's make this hookup happen. RuPaul, if you're listening, we would literally die. You don't even have to come on the show. You can even just tweet at us or, or mention us in passing or something. We are all there for it. You're amazing. But if you would like to come on the show and give us your feedback and your in impressions of episode four birds, birds of a feather. feather we would love to have you and also if you have any other favorite episode or any other favorite moments or characters or anything honestly you can come on the show and talk about anything you want so basically if you just want to take over this show we are here for it so consider this an open invitation we're recording this on April 25th, uh, 2021. So, well, even if it is three years later, we don't care. <laughs> so just putting that out there. This is an exciting start to this episode. And this episode doesn't have any drag queens in it, but it, it does have a lot of other kind of edgy stuff. And I, and I say edgy in quotation marks. I so, would say it has the next best thing to drag queens. That's that's actually a pretty fair assessment. <laughs> With all that being said, would you like to discuss Season 1, Episode 5, Hooray for Homicide? Sure, let's do it. 
first scene, we see some waves splashing against rocks. So we know that we're back in Cabot Cove. Then cut to there's this like creepy rocking chair that's going back and forth. And then you see someone creep up behind this person in, in the rocking chair to strangle them. And then, oh, it's Jessica. And it's not an actual person. It's like a dummy in a rocking chair. And then she mentions something about going back to a bayonet because it's cleaner. So clearly she's writing her next novel and she's looking for some inspiration. Did you notice at this scene who we see again? Ethan. Ethan. He pops up again. Again, he doesn't seem to have a specific job or anything. He's just kind of the guy who watches over the town. So he's in there actually, I guess, fixing her sink while Mm -hmm. she's typing her novel. But I don't know. I've never fixed a sink before. I didn't realize it could be that loud. So I don't know if you have more insight. Yeah, I've never fixed a sink before either. I know that my wife has had to fix the sink several times after I've you know put celery or something in the garbage disposal. But it's I don't think it's ever been that loud. Yeah, unless he's banging on it with a wrench, because that's what it sounds like. No, I think that's all he's doing. I don't think he's fixing anything. I think he's just taking the wrench and the screwdriver and the hammer and then just banging it that's that's his way of fixing things you ever play the sims when you were a younger person uh my cousin had a version like the cd rom version of the sims but it was like the business sims or like community it we had to build like city in the sims the actual person where you can control the people and you make the families when the sim is like fixing some part of the little algorithm or routine that they go through is the sim is bashing the thing that he's fixing with a rent like i guess it's a joke but he ends up obviously fixing it because he's a sim and Mm -hmm. all i could think about was ethan with a little a green plumb bob over his head like banging on a a pipe trying to get it to i don't know unclogged or whatever yeah but that that's what i thought about but apparently there was this really funny line where she basically tries to politely tell him he's making a fucking racket and was she says something to the effect of oh it's hard to type in here with that noise and or Oh, no, he, she, so she says, so Ethan, I'm I'm trying to write here. And he says, oh, okay, it's fine. I don't mind. <laughs> that is the most dude thing uh-huh. that has ever been uttered on the show so far. But it's so on brand. And it's just, it's kind of funny because obviously like she gets exasperated, but in that, oh, what are you going to do kind of way. Right. So I thought that was a nice tidbit. Yeah, no, it was cute. And then the phone rings and Jessica stops writing and she answers the phone and it's her BFF Agnes. And have, we, have we met Agnes before? Wasn't Agnes in the first episode? Like, wasn't she in like the cookie society for the um, very expensive production of that show in Cabot Cove? Gonna have to check and report back. So okay. stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. So Agnes is, is talking about one of Jessica's books and they are mentioning it on a talk show that's currently on television. So Jessica goes, turns on the television, and we are introduced to Jerry Lidecker. He's the producer of one of Jessica's books that's being turned into a movie. It's her first book called The Corpse Danced at Midnight. And if you remember, kind of the spoiler for this book was that the 
pregnant ballerina was the killer. I would say that we could call him former director, actual producer sleaze, but I think that's kind of a mouth. Tom producer sleaze. Sure. Anyway, so Lidecker is, he's talking up the movie and he says it has everything that kids want these days, music, sex, and violence. And then the talk show host says, well, does it have too much violence? And then he mentions the psychotic killer uses a flamethrower on a group of breakdancers. And he had also (laughs) mentioned that the movie was supposed to be a combination of Halloween, Porky's, and Flashdance. Yes. I don't know what Porky's is, but I do know what Halloween and Flashdance are. And I didn't write the book and I'm offended on Jessica. I don't know what Porky's is either, but I think Porky's might just be kind of like a cheesy 80s kind of film. And it definitely meets Halloween slash Flashdance. So if you throw in just a cheesy 80s movie, yeah, it's pretty pretty spot on. You call it Slashdance? Yes! Oh, no. I'm, I'm looking at Porky's right now. It's a teen sex comedy about oh, the perfect. escapades of teenagers in 1954. And Jessica is rightfully horrified. She makes this statement that she's going to make sure that this movie doesn't go forward, even if she has to fly to Hollywood. And where does she go? Well, the next shot is an airplane touching down at LAX. She's in an office, a very 80s office, with a gentleman named Mr. Strindberg. He's one of the named lawyers. And again, this is like what you said, the 80s office. It was just like 80s Ashley's office back in New York, but this is in LA and it's huge, huge office, very 80s. And then I forget the name of the law firm, but I just said it's Dewey Cheatham and how did you notice that there were any ashtrays? I didn't look honestly, I did not notice any ashtrays in his oh office. Oh my god, I'll... that was just one job. I know. All the ashtrays and uh, memorialize them for the Instagram we don't have yet. Okay, but I did notice two in Jessica's hotel room. Okay, that's fair. You're you're doing okay. Okay. You can't catch them all. It was the You really can't. She's Jessica disappointed at at Mr. Strindberg, and he's... He's being, I can't tell if he's being purposefully evasive or if that's just his MO where he kind of tries to whisk everybody out the door with a few choice phrases. And he basically tells her that he has to dig a copy of her contract out of, I guess, cold storage and get first year associates to look at it and then I'll give her a call. Jessica is frustrated because she's getting the brush off from this lawyer who's supposed to be working with her and just no good lawyer would do that. I know he's not supposed to be a good lawyer, but if your lawyer does that, that's generally not a good sign. And there she- is a kind of an ethical issue that I, w- I do want to touch upon a little bit later. So let's just let's just uh, doggy ear that. Jessica is standing outside the studio lot trying to smooth talk her way into onto the lot. When we open onto her, she's basically telling the, the guard, I am the author of a book that they're shooting the movie for. A woman pulls up in a convertible, a character that I have nicknamed British Lady because I couldn't remember her name after the first two or three times. Mm-hmm. But She just so happens to be the costume director or designer for Mm -hmm. the corpse dance at midnight. And why, of course, she's going to vouch for this woman she just met. Of course, you can get into my car. Of course, I can drive you onto a closed set. She basically vouches for Jess, takes her in, and then kind of takes her onto the set. 
So her name was Marta. And you're right, she's a costume designer. And she did have a weird accent. I couldn't tell if it was British or formerly British. I apologize to my cousins who are probably not listening to this because I do. You are so rich. I'm not rich. My (laughs) uncle moved there. He's an accountant. Like, he's not rich. He just moved to England and got married. Does he? So does he talk with a British accent now? So he doesn't. He talks with an American accent who's been around British people for 50 Mm. years. He's at a place in America and he doesn't quite fit in in Britain. So Uncle Jim, I'm really sorry that you don't fit in. No one likes you, Uncle Jim. I like Uncle Jim. So you're wrong. Well, I was wrong, Uncle Jim. (laughs) So yes, I do have British cousins. I have four of them. There are lots of different British accents. Like there are different American accents, like regional accents. I wouldn't be able to put a region on it. My cousins probably could. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some homework. and Okay, you report back. Tuned. You report back on that. I will report back on the ashtrays. The next scene, we see Lidecker, who, again, is the sleazy producer. He is in a trailer with the lead actress of this film. He's mentioned that she's canceled her acting classes, which I think this kind of foreshadows the fact that she might not be the best actress. And he mentions that she's having a relationship with someone else and she needs to cut that off. And he kind of drives home the fact that she's basically only here thanks to him and that she needs to get with it and stop fucking around kind of sets her up as someone who a little naive but she doesn't she doesn't think she is and her name is eve crystal yes and that is the most 80s name oh 80s porn name he's definitely giving this vibe of i brought you into this world and i can take you out pretty obvious that there are having a relationship right he definitely smells a rat but this this is definitely like jealousy definitely paranoia this is definitely personal jessica who's talking to british lady about the screenplay and jessica talks about i guess a combination of horrified and bewildered at what's happened to her book british lady mentions that she also hates the screenplay. Right. And we're subsequently kind of, I guess everyone kind of collides because they're all in this Jessica mm-hmm. and British lady. And producer Sleaze is out there bitching about something. And he gets accosted by somebody who we don't know yet. And they're arguing about money. Direct, or producer says he's not worth the dough and get the hell out banishes this person from the set while jessica and british lady are eavesdropping yeah the person that that sleaze uh sleazy producer is arguing arguing with is a guy that i just referred to a screenwriter because i'm not sure he has a name well I, um, his name is alan i think oh it is okay because that that comes up later and i'm like who the hell is alan <laughs> i had him written down as baby screenwriter because apparently he was a bit of a, a wonderkind and mm-hmm. he had gotten an oscar before age 25 but burned out by 30 and he's trying to make a comeback and he wrote this script and producer slee has changed everything and 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 baby screenwriter is mad 
And then producer Sleaze is like, get the fuck off my set. I'm not giving you any more money. And then he basically says something to the effect of a baby screenwriter says something to the effect of you took out every line that required any acting Mm -hmm. or any brain cells or essentially baby screenwriter is mad because producer Sleaze took a shit on the screenplay. Yeah. And something that's kind of important and comes up a little bit later is that screenwriter was a pill head alcoholic in rehab he's struggling with that as well yes but he he seems to have cleaned up his act enough to kind of get back in the saddle whenever our producer sleaze banishes baby screenwriter he makes this ambiguous or baby screenwriter makes this ambiguous comment marta the costume designer introduces jessica and sleaze producer Jessica wants to talk about the film more and Lidecker brushes her off and says, okay, we'll, we'll meet after lunch. And then sleazy producer Lidecker and Marta walk off and Marta is kind of complaining because again, the star actress, Eve Crystal, is complaining about her costume. We go to the next scene. Jess is watching the dress rehearsal. She's just kind of hanging out. And they're in a graveyard. And a lot is going on. And in, mm. in this scene, we're also to someone I nicknamed uh, Ken Doll. He's the leading man. Oh, that's man. perfect. What is his name? His name is, oh, crud. Why do I keep forgetting people's names? I give them nicknames and then I forget their re- so Kendall and Eve Crystal are getting ready in the cemetery. They're wearing basically the same bathrobe. And we all know in Hollywood, bathrobes are the universal symbol for things about to get naked. <laughs> and at this point, I don't know what Jessica's story was about. I don't know. I know that I have a note that says, where's the pregnant ballerina? And then there's like a sequence of notes as I'm realizing what's going on. And (laughs) I have the last note that says, Jess watches with horror as her masterpiece is turned into porn, basically. Yes. And and so what's funny is that, so we also meet the director, his name is Ross, I think. Director Mustache would have worked as well. And he's kind of explaining what's going on in this soon-to-be sex scene. He's kind of describing it. And I could just, I could just see Eve Crystal saying, okay, but what's my motivation? What's my character's motivation for this? <laughs> oh my God, yes. So the director is explaining that Kendall's, all of his friends, have just been horribly murdered and now Kendall is defying death with an act of joy and then the director says something about Eve's character as a this is one of my favorite descriptions wild warm compliant woman if if there's anything that you want from a sex partner compliance is definitely one of it well I I guess it depends on what you're into but don't the terms wild and compliant aren't they kind of contradictory I don't know. What's the alternative to warm? Like dead? I mean, yeah, like I, a vampire. I, oh, oh, and it's also funny. So the director is trying to explain the character's motivation for the sex scene, and then Barbie Ken walks out, 
and the director says, all right, do you have any questions about the scene? And he's like, nope, they make love. And that's that's all the uh, motivation that his character needs. She's in producer Sleaze's office, and I'm not even sure why she's bothering at this point. She's been in the business for a while. I don't see how she thinks that talking to this guy is going to do anything. She has been in the book writing business for a little while, but this is her first time in kind of the Hollywood business as far as one of her books being turned into a movie. He admits to her that he just bought, I guess, the rights to the movie because the title had recognition. I guess he thought he could get butts into seats that way. Mm-hmm. Which kind of led me to the thought that anybody who would recognize that title enough to want to go see a movie about it wouldn't want to see that movie. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine that the viewers of the of the movie would be very happy because everyone complains that, oh, the movie wasn't as good as the book. The movie doesn't follow the book. There was so much left out. And seemingly in this instance, it, it's not the same plot. It's not even the same characters. Back to kind of the scene where Jess and Sleazy producer are kind of arguing, but Jessica is like very patiently and, and kindly saying that she doesn't want to be disagreeable, but she has rights that she will protect. And then and Sleazy producer says, oh, you're you're wrong again, because I, I bought all of your rights. And then I want to there. <laughs> did you notice the movie poster? That was in the background. Am I thinking of zombie cheerleaders or was that? Yes. So it was vampire cheerleaders. That's what it was. And and it said rated XXX on the bottom. He said he bought her rights and which led me to the first question, which was how? Because isn't that a salient point to go over in a contract? That's not something that I feel like any half decent lawyer or anybody with half a brain would just skip over. And that's kind of the the legal ethical point that I wanted to bring up is that it sounds like the lawyer she had to help her and represent her in the cell of her of her book to be turned into a movie clearly did not go over all of the rights that she was in fact giving up yeah and whether it was her bad lawyer or the writers of this episode didn't know about enough about the law she i feel like in kind of an uncharacteristic fashion just kind of throws up her hands and gives up jessica in her hotel room There's a knock at the door and it's this um, really goofy looking young, young kid. He's got like curly hair. He kind of reminded me of Robin Williams and Mork and Mindy. Yeah, he was goofy. He introduces himself as Norman Lester. He's like a junior attorney and he he giggles at very inappropriate time. It's weird. Yeah, I nicknamed him baby lawyer. (laughs) Because he definitely, he's definitely a junior associate. He's definitely only been out of law school for a year or two. He definitely doesn't know anything. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of fun. And then when he starts, he starts to explain the contract and he said, here for to the party of the first part. That's us. <laughs> and then she, that's when she gets fed, fed up and she just grabs the contract. But she reads and then she realizes that she did sign away all of her rights. And then she feels 
terrible because she, in, in her words, she got very angry at Mr. Lidecker, the sleazy producer. But I thought that was funny because it didn't, to me, it didn't look like she lost her temper at all. On a scale of things to be upset about, I feel like hurting Mr. Lidecker's feelings would be at the bottom of the list. Yeah. My first one would be pure unadulterated rage at my lawyer. Mm -hmm. The second would be like kicking myself in the butt. Three through like 300 would be whoever was around me that made that happen or that didn't catch it. And then I'd be like, oh, you were kind of shitty to this shitty person. She seems to almost give up. And it, it seems like uncharacteristic of her because as we discussed in our last episode, not all co- contracts are set in stone. They're negotiable. You can break them. There's all kinds of things you can do. Well, and maybe, and I'm just like thinking that thinking of this like on the spot is maybe she wanted to play the long game here and she's thinking of ways to correct her image later like maybe she could go on the defensive and go on tv shows and write articles saying she didn't know she she had no kind of direction creative direction in the movie so um, jessica goes to apologize to mr lidecker he's not in the office the secretary suggests that jessica try to call him and jessica says no what i what i have to do must be done in person she says what i must do cannot be done over the telephone jessica goes to the set to try to find sleazy producer lidecker she goes onto the set and then what else does she discover except mr lidecker's dead body she pokes the body which is always a super good idea (laughs) so she sees uh, a gold button you just kind of like glance you just get like a really fast shot of this gold button and then jessica's off to try to find help after she initially interacts with the security guard she's down for the gold button that Mm -hmm. has disappeared and soon we are introduced to the police who have been called and we meet our detective du jour who is lieutenant mike hernandez and i i actually really liked this this lieutenant i he does a couple of things that uh, i really appreciate and i think kind of are actually good techniques that good detectives and lieutenants use in solving crimes. Another interesting thing about him is that he is the first instance of, I'm a writer too, that Jessica encounters on her travels because we see quite often in the show, we see people who just randomly foist their writing upon Jessica like she has nothing better to do. Thankfully, he doesn't ask her to read anything. But what he does is he he asks for her help, but she's also simultaneously a suspect. And I can't tell if he's if he has some kind of game going on, if he has like a long term strategy and you might be able to help me with this. He's definitely fangirling over Jessica. And so I think that that does color his image of Jessica a little bit. Had Jessica not been one of his favorite writers, I don't know that that she would have been given as much leeway. But he does immediately start asking her about theories of the case. And this was also out of character for, for Jessica because she says, oh, she she leaves the theories to the police. She's just a murderer mystery writer, which is not true at all. She's a suspect at this point, right? I think at, at this point, everyone's considered a suspect. I mean, she did find the body, which is 
huge. A lot of times the person that finds the body is a lot of times the in real life, but not always. The scene gets a little more crowded because director mustache and British lady show up. Apparently nobody had told them that this happened, but they said that they were in the costume trailer room or house or whatever and they heard the siren and they both ran out at the same time and they saw the police car and then they figured oh shit something happened i'm not sure if it's at this point that we find out or if it's later but the producer sleazes uh gal pal Mm -hmm. so she clearly whatever kind of fate their relationship met obviously she still cares about him and for some reason and she's very upset and at this point we're faced with the same problem that we had in the last episode which was that everybody hated this guy and for some reason jessica gets stuck with the unwelcome task of telling crystal eve crystal that her producer slash sugar daddy he dead which is so hilarious to me because So Marta, the costume designer, says, oh, someone should tell Eve what happened. And then Lieutenant says, oh, yeah, Miss Fletcher, why don't you do that? And it's so funny the way he just volunteers Jessica to be the bearer of bad news. And they say, oh, Eve Crystal lives at Jerry's Beach House, which I I don't know. I I thought it was funny because I could just think of like, a beach house like just this this random house he has to stash his girlfriends i thought it was funny (laughs) this leads us to the next scene which is a a great scene i think so jessica is is going to the beach house to deliver this bad news so eve crystal is outside they're talking outside and you see a bunch of empty diet soda cans everywhere there's empty diet soda cans and then like an almost empty bottle of scotch and Eve Crystal is drunker than Cooter Brown. She's trying to slur her words. Like, I'm just thinking this entire time, like, oh, my God, this actress is so bad. It's like the actress they got to play a bad actress is a bad act. Like, yes. I don't know if that was intentional or not. <laughs> but and, and that, that is a much better articulated version of what I was thinking. Because I literally, she was she was way overacting. She was acting drunk in the way that, like, kids on a dare skit, like, you know, you remember dare, right? Of course, of course. I couldn't tell if Eve Crystal was pretending to be drunk or the actress was just bad at playing drunk. Yeah, but, I mean, this was almost cringy to watch because she's, like, tr- spilling her drink and being super giggly and she offers i like this line she offers just a pill any color you'd like she's drinking and she's drugging and it's just it's a weird scene and at one point she tells she tells jessica that jessica's just too serious why don't they go skinny dipping <laughs> okay i don't drink scotch but if i were trying to get drunk like to have fun by myself i would not drink scotch 
not even because I don't like scotch, but just because scotch is not a getting drunk drink. I was even thinking when I saw this, I know that like whiskey and Coke is a thing, but Mm. do you mix scotch with Diet Coke? Like, I don't like, isn't scotch like one of those like rich, it's just like one of those like rich man drinks that you sip on with a cigar. Like it's not something you pour in cheap diet soda to mask the taste. Even cheap scotch, like scotch bought for the sake of itself. It's not a mixing drink. And I thought that was weird too, because I'm, I'm not much of a drinker. Even if it's something that could be done, it just sounds gross. Yeah. It's like, so I have this, one of my cousins who he's, God, I, he's in law school now, but he's not British because I don't have rich cousins. At his first party, when he was like going to college, he like tried to drink and it was, oh, he tried to drink gin and Diet Coke. Oh, which. Oh, no. I tried. To, yeah. I, I yeah. I, I don't. Did he make it himself or did somebody give it to him? I don't know. I don't know. It's a bunch of dorky college freshmen you know their second week of college they don't know what they're doing and i think he even called his parents he's like he never got drunk because it tasted so nasty because it was gin and diet coke but even his parents were making fun of him for drinking gin and diet coke (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing oh my god Oh my god. I'm yeah, sorry. So I'm I- just trying to imagine parents <laughs> making fun of a college age kid for being a bad at drinking. Yeah. Oh my god. When I first watched it kind of chalked it up to just maybe her her even like being sloppy, like whenever you've been drinking and there's lots of different stuff like liquors around, everything mm-hmm. just kinda of gets knocked over and is all like everywhere and then you decide to go out and then you come home at three in the morning and you don't want to clean up and then you wake up the next morning and your roommate's mad at you. Totally. That sounds oddly specific. Gabby, if you're listening, <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> but So after the skinny dip skinny dipping offer Jessica's kind of had enough and and was like, you know what? This not this this is a good idea. So she somehow gets Eve Crystal into this outside cold shower to sober her up. I wanted that to be a hose so bad. Like a garden hose. <laughs> a garden hose. I was so disappointed when it turned out to not be a garden hose. That would that would have made the scene so much better. She sobers up pretty fast like uh-huh. it's the it's the quickest sober up in history yeah and then jessica tells eve that sleazy producer lidecker is dead and then there's some more horrible acting but she gets like really loud but one thing i noticed about her acting is that she overuses her hands and her arms oh. and then she doesn't know what to do with them so she's just just kind of throwing them out everywhere and like, and she she just she gets mad and it's it's just horrible she, like, acting cycle through all the stages of grief and she like, does you can really you can really see it because like she goes well, well what do you mean what happened to him and it it's it's just terrible terrible acting that I love so much I I couldn't figure out at that point again if it was Eve Crystal being a shitty actress or if it was the actress being a shitty eve crystal like i i just couldn't figure it out which to the actress's credit i guess was kind of the point yes and now i'm kind of thinking like okay 
in was the actress actress in real life going okay well what's my character's motivation here (laughs) though it is kind of meta like having to play a person who in turn is acting like i think that like you have to act as someone which i thought was i was thinking about it earlier today and i was like huh that's weird it's like double acting (laughs) (laughs) like is it like a double negative where they just like cross each other out out. (laughs) she cycles through all the stages of grief and she's all like sad at jessica the next scene is at the hospital where a bunch of reporters have assembled and they want to know what jessica thinks of this first of all why are we at the hospital if he's dead i thought we were I thought we were back at her hotel room, but I don't know. So we're back at Jessica's hotel and not a hospital, like I thought it was for some reason. And there's a whole bunch of press there and they all want a piece of Jessica and they all want to know what she thinks. Hernandez is back to sort of questioning Jessica and he asks her if she had touched this large metal urn which was apparently the murder weapon because that's what he was clocked on the head with and the fingerprints were wiped off so apparently the fact that the fingerprints were wiped off points to criminal a criminal master yes Uh, and so you're a little more of a true crime person than i am or a like a crime junkie and you've watched more of these shows in 1984 was it like novel to wipe off fingerprints i don't think so but here so here is why i think this lieutenant is actually really good at his job i've watched like a lot of dateline and forensic files and like all of that stuff and he does this great thing that detectives do and it doesn't work all the time it really depends on the the defendant or the suspect or the witness that you're interviewing but he lays out the facts and these facts don't look good for you I believe you. I don't think you did this. My boss does. But help me help you. Help me to explain this away. Which I oh think, boy. yeah, psychologically, like, I think is is very good detective skills. Yeah, because you basically give him the rope that he's... Yeah. Now, wow. I, tr- I truly do believe that the lieutenant did not believe Jessica was the killer. Okay. So in your expert opinion, what was his motivation? What was his motivation? So his motivation was more, he didn't know. So he doesn't really want to do a lot of the legwork here because he's got this famous criminal minds writer. He just kind of wants to lean on Jessica to solve the crime. So So he can spend his, yes. So he can spend his free time, you know, getting his, his screenplay bought. That's she says that she's getting the fuck out of here and going back to me, which we've heard that threat before. Of course, she says, I have no intention of helping you solve this murder. So at the very least, she's a witness, right? Mm -hmm. So I figure she has to probably stick around. I don't know what kind of process she's been through. She probably has to give a statement. There's a trial. She has to come back and testify. But she's basically blowing it off and saying, I'm getting the fuck out of here. He does that thing. He's like, yeah, you might want to stick around, which I thought was kind of a cousin of don't leave town. (laughs) Right. But like, since since when does Jessica not want to stick around and solve a murder? Is it because like, sorry, is it only when like her niece or nephew isn't accused of murder? 
That she doesn't want to solve a murder? Well, I don't know because, and this is something that I'm trying to figure out as the series goes on, is because a lot of times she'll be like, oh, well, I don't want to get involved or I don't want to be a busybody while she's like peeking through somebody's curtains. Like, (laughs) I can't tell if she's actually serious and she just can't help herself or if this is like some strategic, like, don't look at the little old lady like I'm not going to help you. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I really don't know what Jessica's motivation for wanting to for wanting uh, to leave is, it. This is the theme of this is the theme of the episode. <laughs> They're back on the set and Jess is wearing this bomb ass shirt dress <laughs> and she she does she's she's been wearing kind of like she hasn't been wearing the suit she's been doing like the california casual like mm-hmm. the whole long like shirt belted at the waist but obviously it breathes because it's california but it's like a dry heat she gets back to the set or it gets back on the lot and everything it's a new day like no mm-hmm. it's you know this magical place baby screenwriter is back on the job and director mustache is back to being both director mustache and producer mustache and this is very confusing to jessica she doesn't understand and i guess i don't either how a director can be a producer and sometimes also a writer and a producer. I mean, as we learn with Mariska Hargitay, you can be pretty much anything all at once, all the time. Yeah. And I, I think he had originally, Mustache had originally been director and producer. And then producer Sleaze, like, steamrolled his way in and took the producer job away from him. So he wasn't getting as much money. And I don't know if this comes out now, but a director Mustache apparently was in deep and and really needed a good a successful picture and he thought that producer sleaze was like fucking it up left and right with his you know slasher porn screwball comedy yeah yeah that's exactly right director director jeans he or director mustache has a motive so you remember tiffany right from the 80s i think we're alone now okay so it's tiffany doing madonna doing michael jackson's thriller are we talking music wise everything actually that's a pretty fair assessment because i don't know what kind of horrible accident happened that gave birth to whatever music they're playing but this is not music that i that would get me in the mood or that would indicate to me watching a movie that people were about to do it or that were enjoying the sex stuff so the music itself was like 80s techno that sounded like it would be on a cheap video game. If you want to set the mood, like <laughs> there are plenty of like edgy songs you could play. Probably couldn't afford any of them at this point. But okay. Why are they why are there neon tombstones? Like, is that what? Like the tombstones have like neon outlines on them, and I'm like, what? Yeah. I mean, it does go with a techno song. Yeah, it does. But, like, that's disrespectful to the dearly departed and also, like, 
no, it it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. And so we've got this bad 80s techno, this bad 80s lighting of tombstones. And then there's some bad dancing with the backup dancers. And then Ken Barbie comes out and there's more bad Ken acting, Ken but they're not Ken talking. Ken. They're looking at each other and holding each other weirdly. And again, there's just more bad of that okay can i have you ever seen manhunter i don't know if you're a fan of the hannibal lecter universe yes and i am after this podcast is over you find manhunter on whatever streaming platform that you fucking can and you watch okay. that because it is basically it is red dragon oh. it's red dragon in like 1984 and the guy who plays, crud, what's his name? Will Graham is mm-hmm. the the guy who played Gil Grissom on CSI. <gasps> I love that guy. And this movie is so fucking 80s. Okay. That, oh my God, I can't even. The reason is why it- I mentioned it is because there is a like 10 minute sex with this ridiculous, like mostly synth music that you can tell was a favor that the director did for his friend's band oh no oh that sounds amazing i I cannot wait to watch this movie so is it really is it it's not based off of the book is it no it it is it's based on red dragon it's actually not a bad movie it's just some of the stylistic choices are just so bonkers that yeah It's a joy to watch. So as long as we're talking about bad sex scenes, there's a lesbian movie called Blue is the Warmest Color. And it has a somewhat famous or infamous sex scene between two lesbians. And all I can say is that a man clearly wrote and directed the sex scene. You know, we don't need that in lesbian movies. Stop yeah. your man! Stop your mansplaining. You're bad enough doing sex. street sex. Like, yeah. <laughs> don't ruin that too. Oh, yeah. God. I'm- Thank you for listening to Sex Talk with Elizabeth and Laura. While we're watching this terrible atrocity unfold, we learn more things. Insofar as this is where we learn that British lady used to live at the beach house, and she used to be sleazy producers Laver as mm-hmm. the French say. And at this point, it occurred to me, I'm like, why are they shooting at the crime scene like the day after? Uh, that's time just, is like, money. Thought Brandon, like, I guess, but like, how long does it take to process a crime scene? And then like, they're just going right back to it. They probably just had some poor janitor I mean, mop up the blood and then everybody just got back to work. I mean, we clearly know from the last episode where like essentially the police instead of clearing and, you know, preserving the crime scene, they were pretty much just selling tickets to the crime scene and just letting everyone into, you know, the dude's office. Like client cr- crime scene preservation just it's not important back in the 80s. Marta and Jess are talking here. Kind of one one of my favorite things that are brought up in this scene is that instead of, you know, the costumes they were wearing, Eve Crystal was supposed to be wearing a high school marching band costume. A drum majorette. Which 
again, just is my mind is blown. I I'm just trying to imagine this scene with a marching band, and I don't know if it's better or worse than than what's already happening. Having a marching band march through a graveyard while you're trying to have sex to bad '80s music. Mm-hmm. I feel like if they just throw in a murder, then they basically reach the artistic vision that producer sleaze had had yeah while they're all sitting around shooting the shit and contaminating the crime scene bad blouse secretary walks in with lieutenant hernandez and she accuses jessica of threatening sleazy producer and she quotes her on what she had said earlier what i must do cannot be done over the telephone and then basically says you did it you were alone with him you threatened him blah 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 you hated him and accuses jessica of murdering producer sleaze all the while we're kind of cutting to director mustache and he's kind of looking a little cagey he's looking a little squirrely he's looking he's looking at his watch it's obvious that he doesn't want to be there Mm -hmm. so lieutenant hernandez tells jessica to come with him and she says Basically, they they don't arrest her. Generally, when someone is arrested, they are not read their Miranda rights right there. Yeah, they are generally not read Miranda rights until they are actually being questioned. So the police will wait. They will arrest someone. They will put them in the back of the car. They will take them to the station house, whatever, process them, book them, you know, do whatever that is. And then once they actually start questioning them is when they will read the Miranda rights. Can they just tell someone to come with them and like ask them questions and tell them to not leave without So I I think so Jessica was definitely arrested when she was taken, you know, by that the guy, the small guy. She says in the next scene. I think I'm being arrested. I think I'm under arrest. Like, you know, when you're under arrest, or at least you're supposed to. So yes, she is, she is under arrest in that a reasonable person would not feel free to leave. Now she does ask the lieutenant to read her her Miranda rights. And the lieutenant says, I'm not going to book. So I'm not going to read you your rights. So at this point, yes, she was arrested. She is no longer under arrest. I think she's free to leave at any time. And The lieutenant says, I don't think you did this. The DA thinks you did this. The DA thinks that with the evidence we have, which is very little evidence, that he or she can get a conviction. But I think the lieutenant really doesn't think Jessica did it. And again, wants Jessica to prove her innocence herself. So I would just like to point out before the scene changes, she drops probably the best line in this whole episode, which is when he asks her if she wants a cup of coffee, she says, no, I don't want a cup of coffee. I want justice. Hernandez also says that they brought her in to kind of confuse and like draw out the real killer and make Mm. the, the real killer like a little complacent. Maybe they'll make a slip. Who knows? But I feel like maybe Maybe it would have been nice to like kind of let Jessica know that like before. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, there may not have been time. And also sometimes you just you want the people's natural reaction. So if they had let Jessica know ahead of time what was going on, you know, it may not have happened as smoothly. So we are back in the Jessica's hotel. She has been banned from the lot because 
her arrest is apparently evidence of disruptive character or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And Baby Lawyer tells her as much. She presses Baby Lawyer into service and has him act as her private investigator. She gives him this list of things to investigate. And among them is Eve Crystal's medical record, which I don't know when HIPAA became a thing, but I feel like that might be a problem. But you know, hey, that's just me, you know. No, that's exactly what I have written down is that HIPAA, question mark, question mark, question mark. But you're, who knows, HIPAA might not have existed back then. Let me do a Google on some HIPAA. 1996. Oh, wow. The Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996 is a federal law that required the creation of national standards to protect sensitive patient health information. All right. Well, good to know. HIPAA is not in effect at this point. So I'm I'm guessing that up until HIPAA was put into effect, it was just kind of a either state by state or jurisdiction by whatever. People were probably lazy. Nurses were walking away from computers. Everything was on like microfiche and you could <laughs> steal a file cabinet and know everybody. There was oh, probably well. like in the doctor's charts. I just imagine there's like that kind of piece of paper that has like four carbon copies of things underneath. And I just don't know where, and, and granted, Jessica tells them to be resourceful, but where would you even go to start looking for someone's medical records? I don't know. Well, uh, I know the police start looking at insurance. Like that's hmm. the big one. So Jessica just gives a uh, baby lawyer like a task list of things to do, get Eve Crystal's medical records, look into screenwriters battle with alcohol and drugs, which we kind of already know about, look into director Mustache's financial status, which we kind of already know about, and look into Marta and Sleazy Producer's relationship, which we kind of already know about. So then we go to the next scene where Jessica is sneaking back onto the lot, and she just does this by wearing a different outfit outfit and a big floppy hat yep (laughs) and then it's kind of weird so she's in this what it looks like a private screening room so there's Mm -hmm. like a few like movie chairs a big movie screen and this guy is talking to her he's like behind the the scene or like behind the glass and it turns out to be norman's uncle baby lawyer's uncle and he's giving her like these reels and outtakes of scenes from the movie from the corpse danced at midnight and we see a lot of making out between eve crystal and ken doll so it's clear that sleazy producer they're they're having a little too much fun they're a little too in character yeah wink yeah even when the director yells cut they are just continuing to go at it and apparently this is what sleazy producer was watching earlier in the day so just you know leaves there and she finds kendall so she kind of turns on the charm and is kind of like googly eyes for him but not in like a creepy way and just kind of she flatters him and he offers her an autographed picture and he signs it like hugs and and she she takes it and says oh hugs and kisses you know 
should I give this to Eve? And he gets kind of offended and then like, what do you mean? And so Jessica's kind of insinuating that they were an item. So the next stop on Jessica's snooping tour of the lot is the costume department where she meets a nice and very chatty lady named Eleanor who tells her after Jess kind of pulls that whole gossipy, you know, just between us girls shit. <laughs> and she finds out that contrary to British ladies' earlier comments, both Director Mustache and British Lady left the costume department before the siren they also left separately and british lady left first right and and this is important because previously we were told by director mustache that he and british lady marta costume designer were talking about costumes and they came to the scene as as soon as they heard the police sirens which now Eleanor has kind of debunked their alibi. Exactly. It debunks the kind of the alibi of when the director and Marta arrived on the scene. But we also find out that the drum majorette costume was not like in the costume warehouse. And so Jessica goes on the hunt for this particular costume. So she does a B and E into <laughs> Eve Crystal's trailer, and while she's in there looking around, somebody like leaps out from a pile of clothes, pushes past her, and runs out of the trail. Yeah, and it turns out to be Director Mustache. <laughs> and, and then there's this whole kerfuffle where he's running away, and I think she's trying to chase him, but then Baby Lawyer tackle is it Baby Lawyer? Yes, or- Baby Lawyer. Yeah. Baby lawyer is here for some reason, tackles him. There's sirens. There's a philosophical debate about whether he should be arrested. And then eventually they find the gold button that Mm -hmm. director mustache has. And so director mustache is caught gold handed as it were. (laughs) But in the meantime, I think Jess says that he might have the gold button, but he's not the killer. Baby lawyer comes back with inside information. And to be to his credit, he might not be a very good lawyer, but he seems to be a very good like investigator. So yeah. maybe maybe there's a spinoff in the works <laughs> for that. But he, he gives all this information that we kind of already know. But he also mentions when he gets Eve Crystal's medical records that she's diabetic and that she's on some special kind of medication. Mm-hmm. Baby lawyer is kind of excited and he's saying, oh, Miss Fletcher, you did it. You know, you're amazing. We should have a party. And Jessica says, oh, that's a good idea. Let's have a party. And so cut to next scene is actually a party. But baby lawyer isn't there. I think it's pretty interesting that we're back at Sleazy Producers Beach House. So apparently Eve Crystal is still living there. At this point, Sleazy Producers dead. Who knows what's going on with his estate? But anyway, Eve Crystal is still living at the Beach House. And it's weird, the company that's there, because it's Eve Crystal, it's Ken Doll. It's the screenwriter, and it's British Lady Marta costume designer. Okay. Baby screenwriter's name is Alan, by the way. I know I I mentioned that before, but I think this is the first time I found (laughs) out. He and British Lady are trying to leave. So is Kendall. They find out, though, at the the accusing party that the film has basically been scrapped and that Jessica's book and good name are safe 
from the unholiness that <laughs> we witnessed earlier. Yeah. And there's kind of like a lot of fluff going on, but basically Jessica turns this good time into a bad time. So everyone except oh, it was never gonna be a good time for anybody <laughs> but Jess. Let's just be let's just be honest about uh, that. well there was champagne, so I think I yeah. if there's champagne anywhere, I think I could turn that into a party. So everyone leaves and now it's just uh, well, they don't it's just, all just they don't all just leave. They just like suddenly leave. They suddenly <laughs> think of things they have to do. And like uh British lady and baby screenwriter are like, oh, oh look at the time. We gotta yeah. go do aerobics or some shit. <laughs> and then Ken Doll is like all right, bye. I'll call you. And yeah, he's like, just... he's like, I really will. I promise. And so it's just Jessica and Eve, Chris. So what kind of causes everyone to leave was this toast that Jessica, I don't even call it a toast, but basically she says that director mustache was kind of falsely arrested or he wasn't the killer. Uh, so then everyone leaves because she's just, you know, made it a really bad time. And Eve Crystal, Marshall, yeah, she's, yeah, she, Eve Crystal asked Jessica what she means because they found the gold button. Jessica saw the gold button at the crime scene. Jessica kind of turns the tables and is like, I know it was you. I didn't at first because you're good acting when she was acting drunk at the lake house really threw me off. I, I feel like that was a that was that was just a kind thing Jessica uh, said to her, I hope. But th- then Jessica even comments that I got to thinking about it, but no one mixes Diet Coke with scotch. Well I think she has a point there. And then Eve Crystal is a diabetic is on is on medication and when she drinks she turns bright red fun fact about me it, as soon as i start drinking i turn bright red i'm not on any kind of medication for diabetes but Damn. jessica knows that eve was she was just she was acting dry and the only reason she was doing that was because she was essentially trying to create an alibi pretending that she had been drinking all day when you know, in fact, she was the one that murdered Lidecker and drove straight to the beach house. And then gold button, and that comes into play, is that as soon as Eve murdered Lidecker, you know, Eve dropped the urn and ran off. The director came in, saw the dead body, saw the gold button, because that was the button that from the majorette costume that Eve was wearing at the time. So the director knew Eve was the killer. So at this point, he like grabs the button and then he takes off. And the reason he's trying to kind of protect Eve here is because he wants the uh, movie to continue. And she does that confessing thing again. She talks about it again. At least, you know, Amos Tupper isn't on the phone. So (laughs) I guess she could theoretically argue that, you know, she was coerced or whatever that never happened. This episode ends on a really a bummer of a note. We're used to the episodes ending where everyone's learned a valuable lesson and somebody's engaged we learn from eve's admission 
that she kind of killed Lidecker because Lidecker found out that Eve and Barbie Doc Ken were in a relationship and he didn't like that. So he was going to have Barbie Doc Ken cut from the cast and he would have his 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 part recast and kind of would ruin and blackball Barbie Doc Ken from Hollywood. I can't imagine where they would get a replacement for Barbie Doc Ken on such short notice. He's really he is one of a kind. Yeah. He, he cannot be recast. What was his yeah, name again? No way. Uh, <laughs> shit, I don't know. Tom? Yeah, he looks like a Tom. Or a Ken. So, that is the end of our episode. And, oh boy. So, so, Elizabeth, what do you think of this episode? I liked parts of it. And I think overall it was entertaining. But I'm not sure that I actually like liked it. Mm-hmm. There were just too many things wrong with it that just, like, like we talked about, like, the, the legal problems, the sex graveyard, like, just, the, just there was just too much of everything. I, I agree. There were some parts that were super entertaining. Um, and, and, I, and I feel like it was just a little too wacky. Yeah, it was definitely wacky. I think, though, this, that's kind of the enjoyable part to me was just the craziness of the Tiffany does Madonna does Michael Jackson's thriller. But then there was some, I think, lazy writing on the writer's part as like how everything came together. So, Laura, do you have a Golden Grady Award to give out? Oh, man, I forgot about the Golden Grady Award, but... You want me to give you time to think while I talk about mine? (laughs) Yes, please. So I'm giving my Golden Grady Award to uh, Baby Lawyer. Yes! Not because obviously he's a white guy who looks like he's probably in a profession that he's not sure he can handle. So there's the implied failing up, even though we don't know that. But I only, I chose him as the Golden Grady for the simple reason that like, he is Grady. He's like some kind of doofus, lovable doofus, who's not very good at his job, but somehow still does it. And like, he'll just go along with Jess's shit. Like, he he basically just seemed like the character of Grady with a different name. And you know what? I, I literally have in my legal pad here... As soon as we are introduced to Baby Lawyer, I have Grady version of a lawyer. Laura, assuming that disaster doesn't strike between now and next week, what will we be uh, discussing next time? Looks like we are taking another venture into Will's trust and estate law when a gentleman dies and leaves uh, his entire fortune to his dog. Yes, and it should also be mentioned that this episode is entitled It's a Dog's Life. Ha ha ha. So we have that to look forward to. There will be many discussions of wills and estates, maybe some Leona Hemsley references, if you guys are lucky. And, you know, just stay tuned. So that's what's coming up. Uh, So now is the time to thank some people that have rated, reviewed, and subscribed to our podcast. I would like to make some particular shout outs to my friends, Cassie, Eve, Dawn, and Sherry. And I would like to shout out to my friend, Eric, plus 
all of my homies in the femmes of DeSoto, which nobody except them will understand, and that's perfectly okay with me. Thank you for being most of the audience so far for this podcast. With special thanks to Amy for sharing this thing of ours in Australia. And it means a lot to know that A, this isn't a total waste of time, and B, like, you guys are genuinely entertaining. Next time on Murder She Woke. And remember, stay woke. Stay woke.